The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So one of the categories that stuck out to me as being both important to Trump and the kind of thing he would get in, in a lot of briefings is foreign intelligence, right? So things about North Korea, things about Iran. These are two topics that are very important to Trump about nuclear weapons that he has all sorts of complicated feelings on, especially with regard to North Korea. And I kept wondering if that is the kind of category where it's not necessarily a document about nuclear secrets, but it could be a document about foreign intelligence, about a nuclear weapons program. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 13th, 2022. It's an emergency podcast. We don't do a lot of them anymore, but Friday afternoon, the federal court in Florida, acting at the Justice Department's request, unsealed the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago that the FBI had executed earlier in the week. There was a lot of interesting information in it. How many bathrooms are there at Mar-a-Lago, for example? How many TSSCI documents did the FBI seize from the resort? Which European head of state had various documents about him lying around at Mar-a-Lago? We gathered in the virtual jungle studio to talk it through Pete Strzok, FBI's former counterintelligence agent who has executed his share of warrants, Quinta Jurassic, Lawfare Senior Editor, and Alex Wellerstein, historian of nuclear weapons and secrets. It's the Lawfare Podcast Emergency Edition about that Mar-a-Lago warrant. All right, so we have a million things to cover here, and I want to do it in an organized fashion. So, Quinta, first of all, get us started. What happened today, and what did we learn? So, today was a busy day. The bottom line is that the search warrant that was executed at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate on Monday was unsealed. Um, Importantly, not including the affidavit that came along with the warrant, but we do have uh, the warrant itself along with two attachments uh, detailing the, the property that was seized and also the statutes that the Justice Department was pointing to. So that is key because it it gives us a little more of a sense of what exactly was going on here. Uh, There was a bit of a flurry of attention uh, before 
this material was unsealed, where we were waiting for Trump to essentially have the opportunity to object uh, before 3 p.m., which was the deadline set by the judge. And he eventually decided not to, but uh, not until a great number of news organizations had already reported in some detail on the contents of the warrant. So in terms of what the document itself shows us, um, I think the there are a bunch of things that are really important, and I'm sure we'll get to them all. The top line is that the property to be seized is listed in the warrant as uh, documents and records constituting, and this is a quote, contraband, fruits of crime, or other items illegally possessed in violation of 18 U.S.C. 793, 2071, and 1519. So what are those statutes? Uh, The first, 1519, is an obstruction of justice statute uh, that has to do with destruction or falsification of records. The they're the one that is uh, 2071 is about concealment, removal, or mutilation generally of government records, um, and importantly, isn't specific to classified information. And then that last statute, 18 U.S.C. 7093, which is part of the so-called Espionage Act uh, that covers gathering or transmitting defense information, and that has to do with possession of classified information, which is key. Because in those uh, the material that the FBI took from Mar-a-Lago, according to the warrant, there is a great deal of material that is listed as classified at some level. We obviously don't have a lot of detail about what those documents are, but there are boxes that are listed as miscellaneous secret documents, miscellaneous top secret documents, classified TSSCI documents. There's also some just sort of odd stuff, like uh, one document that's listed as an executive grant of clemency, Ray Roger Jason Stone. Uh, And one thing that's just listed as information regarding the president of France. So I don't know what that is. Uh, So needless to say, I think this gives us a lot more of a sense of what's going on, but there are still a lot of open questions. All right. Pete Strzok, you are unique among regular lawfare contributors in having actually executed search warrants. Uh, So I'm, I'm interested, first of all, in what stands out to you about this one. You've also done a lot of national security investigations, including, I assume, investigations under some of these statutes. I'd be surprised if you hadn't done a 793 warrant at one time or another. What catches your eye here? Uh, Well, a few things. I mean, I think the attachment A is pretty broad. It isn't just the three rooms that were mentioned that... And and what is attachment A for those who have so attachment So there are two attachments. So so what was released today, there are three essentially, well, four pieces of information. The first is the actual warrant itself, not the affidavit, which is going to lay out the in great detail the sort of investigative reasons that an agent has reason to believe that there is evidence or fruit of a crime at the place to be searched. This is just essentially the... The, the actual warrant is a one-page thing that the judge signs that says, you know, it is addressed to any officer saying, you know, you may, somebody has applied for a warrant for this location to seize these items, and anybody who has this warrant can go out and do it. You have to execute it before a certain date uh, within these times, and, you know, as soon as you're done with that, you have to return to me the fact, essentially, let me know that you've executed it and the things that you seized. And so that's that's there. It was uh, issued on the 8th of August. So, you know, there's some that was a, a little bit in time before it was actually executed and the deadline to do it prior to August 19th. And it was a daytime warrant. So it was not 
it, it was not authorized to do it overnight. Attachment, there are a couple of things that are attached typically to a search warrant application. There's the affidavit, which we didn't get, which I just talked about. And then typically there are spaces on the warrant where you can list where you want to search and what you want to seize, but they're tiny little spots. So typically what the assistant United States attorney will do is say, see attachment A and see attachment B, attachment A being because it comes first in the, in the warrant shell, the places to be searched. And then attachment B is the property to be seized. And so when you do that, those are also both those things were released that you have the premises to be searched is, you know, Mar-a-Lago. And it kind of describes with specificity, you know, a street address, what it is, an intersection and a description in there that talks about, you know, whatever it is, the 58 bedrooms, 33 bathrooms and a 17 acre estate. But it's, again, it is broader than there had been some reporting that three rooms had been searched. The authority for this warrant is broader than that. So it, it says the 45 office in quotations, all storage rooms and all other rooms or areas within the premises used or available to be used by the former president of the United States and his staff in which boxes or documents could be stored, including all structures or buildings in the estate. And then it doesn't include areas that somebody else is staying at, at Mar-a-Lago, unless it was available to Trump or his staff. So that, that didn't, it was a little broader than I anticipated. It, it didn't list, you know, one of the things that sometimes if you have an informant who says, hey, you know, on the third floor, there's a safe in, or there's a, you know, a, a locked uh, room or locked chest in a certain area. Sometimes you will see that specified in attachment A if there's any question about whether or not there may or may not be authority to do it. But in this case, there is no mention of a safe. That doesn't mean they weren't allowed to do it. It just means that the description of the the um, premises to be searched was broad enough to allow that. It was really interesting to me. I think most of all comes in attachment B. And again, attachment B is the property to be seized. The first thing is what we all might expect. Um, any physical documents with classification markings, container boxes in which they're located, and any containers, boxes that are collectively stored or found together with the aforementioned documents. That's what you'd expect, right? You're looking for classified information. What's interesting in that part is there is not mention of electronic media anywhere in here. So there is anything which might be a thumb drive, uh, a memory card, uh, a CD-ROM, none. There is no electronic media listed anywhere in attachment B. This is just physical documents. So that was a little bit of interest, not particularly surprising because Trump you know, by all accounts did not, he, he tweeted, uh, he, he might, but he didn't, from what I've seen, didn't use a computer, didn't use email, didn't like to do it. Very similar to, you know, except for her BlackBerry, Secretary Clinton was the same way, didn't, didn't use a computer. So anyway, that it's just documents. Again, now the, the big reveal, and the most interesting thing to me, I think in this whole thing is an attachment B, the second item there, information, including communications in any form regarding the retrieval, storage, of, or transmission of national defense information or classified material. So it, that's an oddly worded thing. I haven't in my recollection seen it, but what it seems to me is what they are looking for there is any sort of correspondence that Trump or his attorneys might have had between them and any element of the government, whether that was the White House, whether that was the National Archives, whether it was the Department of Justice, talking about what do you have in your possession, searching for it, producing it, and I, you know, trying to read between the lines here, trying to find information about what they knew about transmitting that. That, that B is all about trying to establish state of mind and intent, 
in my mind, they're trying to find what things might have led Trump to know that classified information was being transported to Mar-a-Lago, that the government was trying to retrieve classified information from Mar-a-Lago. This is very much, it seems to be a, what did Trump know and when did he know it? Not about classified information, but sort of about the meta issue that classified information was being first transported to Mar-a-Lago and then was the government was trying to retrieve it. And again, that's that's I haven't seen that. It is a critical element of the offense for a couple of these charges. And so, I, again, I thought that was interesting. The rest then devolves from classified information to just any presidential record and any evidence of alteration, destruction, or concealment about it. So B and, B and D are a little bit similar. And then the last part is the property receipt, which is three pages long. It's pretty generic. You know, who among us does not have a various classified TSSEI documents, miscellaneous top secret documents, miscellaneous top secret documents, and miscellaneous top secret documents, miscellaneous top secret documents. There are a number of both secret and confidential documents, but on at least one, two, three, four, five items, you have top secret documents. And one of those top secret SCI documents, which SCI stands for sensitive compartmented information. It is a further restriction on dissemination of material that is classified at the top secret level, which is very significant. And keep in mind, this is like the dregs. These are the leftovers of what the National Archives did not recover in the 15 boxes that they received back in January. All right, Alex, this is your uh, first time on the Lawfare podcast. Welcome. We asked you here because the Washington Post reported last night that there was, among other things, nuclear secrets among these classified documents. The the warrant gives no information that has the word nuclear or that suggests nuclear. But how do you map the Washington Post story from, from yesterday onto today's uh, warrant? I mean, who knows, right? I mean, anyway, glad to be here, but I'm just saying it's very little you can sort of easily map over. If some of the documents had said top secret restricted data or something like that, that would be a much more plausible, easy mapping. Uh, But as it is, it may not have that kind of marking on it. It may just be something mixed in with other top secret documents. The, The system we use in the United States for nuclear secrets is a sort of parallel system with our national defense information. So a document can have multiple uh, markings on it. It could be top secret and have restricted data, which is what nuclear secrets are indicated. Whether the index that they're giving for these documents would include that information, I don't know. But uh, it's not easy to tell. I'm not saying it, it doesn't support it, but it doesn't have something where it jumps out where you say, oh, this is what they were talking about. Yeah, so let's talk about that uh, at the risk of what may turn out to be a tangent if the Washington Post story is wrong. Talk about the parallel system of of nuclear secrecy versus national defense secrecy and what do we know about whether uh, I mean you're not you're not a, a a national security lawyer but do we know anything about whether the 793 statute language information pertaining to the national defense covers the nuclear secret stuff as well as the national defense information? 
So in the United States, we have sort of these two tracks in our classification system. One of them is national defense information, which is most of pretty much everything you think of as a secret. And these are what are rated as confidential or secret or top secret. These are classifications within the sort of broad category. And the Espionage Act tells you what happens if you abuse these kinds of secrets. And the way these kinds of secrets are delivered is you uh, essentially all of the ability to classify something comes from a very small number of sort of original classifiers, which can include the president, who can then delegate some of that authority to people underneath them to look at a document, usually one that is generated by the United States, maybe the intelligence community or the military or, or the State Department or whoever, and say, if this information was released, it would cause some degree of damage to the United States. Thus, I'm giving it this classification rating, and that tells you how you have to handle it and what the punishments would be if you mishandled it, et cetera. Okay, so that's every other secret except for a category called restricted data, which was created with the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, specifically to apply to nuclear weapons secrets, specifically to sort of technical secrets about the manufacture uh, of nuclear weapons, which also included at the time nuclear reactors. Just, I just want to put a, put a fine point on something that you're saying here. The restricted data category is a matter of statute. It does not yes. flow right from the executive order that creates uh, the classification system, which I guess the current version of which is is one two three three three, this is a separate body of law that lives in statute, right? It lives in statute. It's been modified several times by Congress. Um, it's a definitely a live set of laws, <laughs> of legislation, and yeah, it doesn't derive from the executive order approach. So, as you're implying, and I'll just lay it out. The way in which the classification for everything else works is not just that you um, have this whole system, but that presidents can sort of define how that system works through executive order. And then the, the Espionage Act is more or less defining what happens if you break the law. So it's like the Espionage Act is mostly just the teeth of this executive order, essentially. And then there's all these regulations that come out that tell you what you have to do with these different categories. And so restricted data is really unusual in this sense because it is defined entirely by statute. Congress set it up uh, in 1946. It's been modified several times. And this gives it sort of a different feel in many ways. It, it, it feels much more codified than I think the sort of national defense information does in procedures. A president just can't come in and wave his hand and change how it works. Uh, you actually have to go to Congress for that. What's unusual about it is it's if national, de national defense information, this requires a person to say this is secret. Restricted data doesn't require that. Restricted data is defined by the content of the data. So the law essentially says any information, I'm paraphrasing, uh, about nuclear weapons is classified as restricted data by default, no matter who makes it, no matter when they make it, no matter where they make it. So I can't make a CIA secret because I don't work for the CIA, right? But I could come up with a new nuclear weapons design. And in the United States, according to this law, that would be restricted data, even if I'd never had a security clearance, signed a contract, did anything. So this is what they call the born secret provision. And it's a very str strange legal provision uh, that only applies to restricted data. I don't know of any other country that does it this way. It's very unusual legal creation that is, I would argue, pretty specific to the moment in which it was created. 
and uh, and that's a sort of separate level. And any given document can contain restricted data and classified uh, national security defense information. So when you see documents that have restricted data in them, they always have some other classification on them as well. It'll say top secret restricted data, confidential restricted data. To see restricted data, you have to have a Q clearance, which is equivalent to sort of a top secret clearance, but it's a separate process, separate agency, a separate clearance system. It's sort of an extra layer of secrecy on nuclear weapons stuff. So that's sort of the the, the broad framework there. The, the question in terms that you had in terms of like, would you be prosecuted? They generally don't prosecute people for restricted data under the Atomic Energy Act. Even the Rosenbergs weren't. They were prosecuted under the Espionage Act. And part of that is because the Espionage Act is a little bit more tried and true. Uh, they really haven't had successful prosecutions under the Atomic Energy Act. And that whole construction of restricted data is applying to anybody at any time. Uh, it's not clear how that interacts with the First Amendment in many situations. And so the Department of Energy and the Attorney General have generally, if they're going to prosecute you for secrets, they'll find a way to do it under the Espionage Act because everything that's restricted data is also national defense information. They have literally like one time tried to use the Atomic Energy Act and the restricted data clause, and it didn't work out. It, it, they almost lost the case. They mooted it in the end, so there was no ruling. But it, it sort of shook any confidence they might have that this would be a really good way to, to to actually use it. So we have this law in the books that is used to at times threaten people, but it isn't clear that it's actually enforceable. And from all intents and purposes, they don't seem like they want to find out because the answer might be no. Right. Although it is used as an administrative category, right? Yes. It, it tells you how to handle, it, it's used to tell you how to handle certain documents and what's in them. It's certainly used, but I mean, in terms of criminal prosecutions, it does not, it's not really used. All right. So Pete, having heard that, does this give you an answer to the question why there is no reference to uh, restricted data portion markings in this inventory i.e. because they're not relevant to any of the statutes at issue? Or is this does this suggest to you that the Washington Post story may be wrong or exaggerated and that the this information, while highly sensitive, may not be chiefly nuclear weapons secrets? I don't think there's enough information there for us to know. I mean, I think at the end of the day, when you look at the statutes that are listed there, the only one that deals with national defense information or national security type things is 793. And 793 speaks in the context of national defense information. So, you know, my experience with things that are related to restricted data are not, they are always, you had sort of a dual classification. So it'd be top secret slash restricted data. And maybe it'd have like a, you know, if they're whatever Sinwitty stands for, critical nuclear weapon design information, you might have like a Sigma, but they're all these DOE. I, 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 I think there is a very arcane system, which seems very administratively burdensome. And every time we dealt with something that touched on sort of nuclear weapons sort of information, it made my head hurt because it is a well-established process of both in 793 and 794 in the Espionage Act to do that. And you can incorporate nuclear weapons design information or things having to do with nuclear weapons because they tend to be, dual. you will see the, the NDI, the National Defense Information sort of classification marking confidential, secret, top secret. And then you'll get the parallel RD 
gobbledygook that gets tacked on at the end. What's interesting, and it's not, well, I, <laughs> I pray to God it does not apply in this case. There are certain categories in 794 where 794, and this is not in Trump's indictment. This is, you know, espionage where somebody's passing information or attempting to pass information to a foreign power. There are categories where that becomes a capital offense. One is if you're talking about a person, a source of the United States who ends up being killed, assassinated because of the disclosure. But nuclear weapons information is also part of that. So the disclosure of nuclear weapons information can trigger a capital offense. I, you know, to my recollection, I'd have to go back and check what the Rosenbergs were charged with. That isn't something that we have charged in living memory or recent memory. Uh, I don't expect it here, but it's it's odd. In the interaction, at least in the Bureau, you know, I worked next to a guy who had done a lot on the Winho Lee case. And there, there was a bunch of, it wasn't restricted data, but it was called PARD, where DOE had said, protect this as restricted data. And it got into this really horrifically murky legal state of what that was or wasn't in the eyes of the law. But that's a really, that's a rabbit hole that I apologize for going down into. What I see here, what I see on that sheet, it is so general in terms of the only thing you're seeing there is top secret, secret, confidential, and one line that says top secret SCI. That's the only kind of content it gives about classification. That that doesn't tell me one way or the other whether or not there's anything relating to, to, to nuclear weapons or nuclear weapon design sort of stuff. All right. So Quinta... Uh, as our resident uh, follower of extreme unreasonable reactions on the far right to things, you know, the, the right was in a, a real tizzy after Monday. Uh, this morning, after the Washington Post story came out last night, the Republican study group canceled its press conference, uh, apparently having caught some whiff of the fear of God that maybe the information supporting this warrant was uh, going to be upsetting. What is the reaction now to the actual warrant itself like? So the the reaction seems to have moved from, you know, when, when there's a new Trump scandal, I think that there's often a sort of progression of defenses of, you know, he didn't do it well, he did do it, but everyone else also did it. To he did do it and it's awesome. I don't know if we've fully gotten to he did it and it's awesome, but we've definitely moved from he didn't do it to everybody else also did it. So Trump personally uh, accused Obama of taking classified documents, uh, including nuclear documents. Uh, the National Archives then put out a statement clarifying that, in fact, that was not the case. There was a quite an odd press conference on uh, Friday morning from Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee, where one member kind of suggested that, well, you can see information on your phone that is classified, and therefore it's fine that Trump took this material. So query the logic there. I don't know if that really holds together. But it seems like the I've I've actually been struck by how limp the defenses of the president have been. I think that right after the search took place, the defense was pretty immediate and 
vituperative on the part of Republicans. You know, there was a lot of, you know, calling the FBI the Gestapo, (laughs) complaining about how, you know, this was becoming an authoritarian police state, that the search was unmerited, et cetera, et cetera. And all without pictures of Pete, you know, along with it. I mean, it's like Pete was, you, you were suddenly relieved from being uh, the picture of the worst of the worst at the FBI. Ben, I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that maybe, just maybe, it isn't any one individual person. It is anybody who might try and investigate the various alleged criminal wrongdoing of our president and those around him. I, but just just taking a guess there. Just a thought. You were saying, Quinta. Yeah, touche. Um, so I do think that uh, there was some reporting, I believe, in the New York Times that after the the search was conducted, that Republican allies of Trump were reaching out to congressional Republicans to sort of try to gently hint that they might want to soft pedal their critiques of the FBI a little because more damaging information could be coming out. Uh, and I think that that proved to be pretty prescient. It really was notable that the, the House Intelligence press conference this morning from the Republicans, it was not nearly as aggressive as statements earlier in the week have been. Kyle Cheney, who's a reporter at Politico, summarized it as essentially the Republican saying, we don't know much about the search. We'd like to know more. There are circumstances where it could be justified. Please tell us more about the search. So that's a big departure from where where things had previously been. And as far as I can tell, so we're recording this, we're it's currently around 6 p.m. on Friday, uh, so maybe three hours or so after the warrant was released, the defense of Trump seems mostly to have moved to if he did have such sensitive information, why did it take them so long to get it from him? So I, th- I think the complaint is that the search didn't take place earlier. Obviously, that doesn't really logically hang together if you're angry that it took place in the first place, but I think that is sort of demonstrative of how weak a hand Trump's defenders are playing with. That doesn't mean that they won't figure something out by, you know, this time tomorrow. But right now, I think the silence is pretty deafening. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Pete, I'm curious, the thing, the document that was not released is the affidavit in support of uh, the warrant as... Anybody who's spent any time in a docket knows that's really the document that you're most interested in as a general matter, because the FBI will describe in some detail the investigation to date 
it will also describe the information that in its judgment predicates the warrant. That is, what is the collected information that that constitutes probable cause in its judgment. And yet Merrick Garland clearly thought that the release of this document would uh, shame the FBI's critics and to some degree silence them. And I'm I'm curious uh, whether you think it is playing that role and whether that judgment on the attorney general's part was a good one or whether it will only increase cries for the release of the affidavit, which of course would presumably be damaging to the investigation to do at this stage. I think it was more than sufficient. I mean, there, there is enough information in here that I think will quiet any critics in terms of when you just, just looking at the volume and, and we don't know when these, I'm, I'm looking at the, the property receipt that was released. It doesn't say whether when it says various classified TSSCI documents, it doesn't say whether that's a box, a binder, a banker's you know folder. But what if you look and just go through the different items, TSSCI documents, miscellaneous top secret documents, miscellaneous top secret documents. You know, it is clear miscellaneous top secret documents and miscellaneous top secret documents. One, two, three, four, four top secret documents, which were plural. So at a minimum, there are eight top secret documents. And at a minimum, there are two TSSCI documents. Well, that's many, that's more than, than former Secretary Clinton had uh, that were identified in a, in a very different context. In the context of work, it's hard to describe in an unclassified way. And just to be clear, Pete, you ran that investigation. I, a partner and I did, yes. And, and so that when you look at the intent and reason that they were on there, there was a very logical reason why they existed the way they did. And some of it had, well, it was just, it was in the course of doing the job she was supposed to do in a very important context. And so, so, so wait, let me just pin you down on this. You're saying that the volume here, just from the record that was released today, exceeds the volume of of classified material that was in at issue in the Clinton email investigation, and doesn't have the mitigating factor that it was uh, produced in the context of a of, of a reasonable work stream. From what has been publicly reported, that certainly appears to be the case. We have at least, you know, what we have at least ten top secret documents here by media reporting in that first dump that the National Archives recovered. There's reporting that that contained TSSCI information. So, at a minimum, and it it, it talked about documents, as I recall, in that initial reporting. So, at a minimum, and I'd have to go back and check and see. There have been numbers released about what we came across with Secretary Clinton. I'd want to review that before kind of getting into detail about it to make sure I was within what has been released. But this is more than that. And this is more than that in the context of a man who spent his entire 2016 campaign and for years of his presidency railing about how wrong and criminal it was for Secretary Clinton to have this classified information on her server. Nobody should have that. They should go to jail. That's illegal. They should unfit for to hold office again and again and again. So if you're trying to demonstrate whether or not somebody knew what they were doing was wrong, you know, we've got 50 
press conferences and speeches that we can all point to where Trump was railing on Secretary Clinton for doing something that is now, from these documents that Attorney General Garland released, is of a greater significance than anything Secretary Clinton ever did. So I, I, I think it's enough. And I think it, it did what it needed to do. I don't suspect any serious member of Congress or the Senate is going to try and back uh, Trump's behavior in this regard at this point. And I, th- I think it was enough. I think it was the right thing to do. And it worked, in my opinion. All right, Alex, I want to ask you about a passage of uh, one of Bob Woodward's books where he quotes Trump talking rather blithely about this really cool new nuclear weapon. And I don't remember the details of it, but I remember it made a bit of a splash at the time. And it clearly wasn't something that was supposed to be getting out there breezily. And my first thought when I read this uh, story in the post was, that's probably what he kept documents about, you know, this this really super cool new nuclear weapon. What do we know about this? And is there, just to ask you to speculate completely irresponsibly, is there any reason to believe this would be the thing that could link a whole lot of classified material to a nuclear weapons system that we know he's fascinated by and like, likes to talk about to Bob Woodward to a stash of documents that the FBI seizes maybe as national defense information at Mar-a-Lago. Well, I'll, I will say that uh, when he first said that quote about the, I forget it, the exact words, right? The super big bomb, super best bomb ever, whatever it is. There was a lot of discussion in the sort of nuke world of like, what is he possibly referring to? Because we are not, it's not obvious. So it's either something that is completely so secret that there's no hint of it anywhere, which is pretty unlikely just because that's not how not how it works anymore. <laughs> it's not, it isn't World War II, right? Like they, we, we sort of telegraph our capabilities and our contractors put them on, on, on ads in the subway, right? In, in Washington, D.C. And also right? the whole direction in the creation of nuclear weapons is making smaller, lower yes. yield nuclear weapons, not yes. bigger payloads, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yields are not, there's no reason for higher yields. You might have more accurate weapons and you might have all sorts of other clever things you can do with a weapon for sure, but they're not going to be bigger American weapons. We don't need them. So the general, I don't know if any consensus ever emerged, but the sense that I got and the sense that I got books, other people I was talking to with is that somebody was trying to impress Trump with how much great work they're doing and told him about some new system. And Trump was over, perhaps overly impressed because he doesn't he doesn't really know anything about this stuff. So if you go to Trump and you say, oh, we've got a Sista B61 mod, whatever, and now it can do a bunker busting with 20 times more accuracy than before, he's going to be really impressed by that. Whereas if you know something, you're like, oh, so you took something from the 90s and made it a little shinier. That's nice, right? That's It's not necessarily, it's not groundbreaking, it's incremental. So the sense was that he probably got essentially snowed on on how fancy some new thing was. And if that's the case, it's probably really boring, whatever it is. Now, it could be something more fancy than that, but but that 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 was sort of the sense that I think people concluded at the time, rightly or wrongly. Could this 
be something where he is totally fascinated by some system and it's become, I don't know. I will say that the one historical reference I keep going back to, interestingly, uh, maybe because it's the week of the anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki also, uh, is Harry Truman. And the example I, I really love is Harry Truman was not interested in technical details. He was not interested in in any kind of complex he didn't parse numbers or anything like that. That wasn't his approach, especially to nuclear weapons stuff. Uh, but he was fascinated by the Trinity test. He was really impressed by the report he got for it in the summer of 1945, right after they tested the first nuclear weapon. And he sort of read this report out loud as he walked around his room and pots them to various people. And he apparently committed parts of it to memory because throughout his life, you can find little lines that he uses when talking about the atomic bomb that are ripped from this initial report. Like he memorized a turn of phrase in the way that we sometimes do. And uh, and I wonder if there's some sort of latching on to something with Trump also and getting interested in the turn of phrase or getting interested in the one one piece, which may or may not be that exciting, probably not as exciting as the Trinity test. I will say that this just to segue into it after he was president. Truman got in trouble. The FBI became aware of the fact that he was giving these talks about the atomic bomb and would occasionally say classified things. And in particular, one of these lines from that initial Potsdam report was that the atomic bomb that had detonated in New Mexico had 13 pounds of plutonium in it. And Truman was clearly really struck with the idea of this huge explosion coming from only 13 pounds. The bomb is 10 tons, but it's got this 13 pound little ball of plutonium inside it. And he was apparently telling people about the 13 pounds into the 1950s, even though that number is to- was totally classified at the time. And it wasn't clear what you're what are you going to do? Do you go to him and demand he not say this? And he's also he's Harry Truman. I mean, come on. And so in the end, they just from what I can tell, they just sort of decided not to do anything about it and hope he didn't say it too loudly. But that's sort of the only example I could think of of a of a ex-president getting in trouble for sort of being overly lax about nuclear secrets. And it it didn't turn into anything, but it's kind of interesting. It is. So I'm curious what else, when you read the Post story, there's the the boast to Woodward. Uh, There's the statements about, you know, the button on my desk is bigger than the button on your desk to quit Kim Jong-un and my, my button works. Uh, what are the categories of things that you thought of that, you know, knowing what we know about Donald Trump, he might be inclined to hoard at Mar-a-Lago relative to nuclear weapons or nuclear anything? That's a really good question. I mean, the the, the area that sounded most, just felt most plausible to me, and this is not just what he'd be interested in, but also what is he going to see what what documents does a president get and obviously a president gets a lot of different types of documents but the president you don't give the president designs of a nuclear weapon right that isn't the kind of document they will ever see in their entire life maybe they could ask for one i guess but that isn't what filters up to to a president uh as i understand it from looking at their records and how they play roles and decisions so one of the categories that stuck out to me as being both important to Trump and the kind of thing he would get in, in a lot of briefings is foreign intelligence, right? So things about North Korea, things about Iran. These are two topics that are very important to Trump about nuclear weapons that he has all sorts of complicated feelings on, especially with regard to North Korea. And I kept wondering if that is 
the kind of category where it's not necessarily a document about nuclear secrets, but it could be a document about foreign intelligence, about a nuclear weapons program, which would also probably get you out of the restricted data problem of why isn't any of these marked restricted data if they are. In other words, an assessment, how many how many nuclear weapons does Kim Jong-un have and and where are they and how could we hit them or could we? Or if will they do we think they will work? Right? Think about the button, right? Mine right. I have a button and mine works. Maybe he's got some estimate that says we have a only a 10% probability that their bomb would go off as you know, you could imagine something like that potentially. Interesting. And of course, you could imagine something similar about Iran, particularly given the uh, pullout from the Iran nuclear deal, as well as the the various discussions and around the killing of Qasem Soleimani. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, that it may be somebody else's nukes that are the subject of, of the material and yeah, that would get you around the restricted data. That would just be, you know, garden variety TSSCI stuff of the sort that we all hoard in our houses. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about what happens now. Quinta and Pete, in whichever order you guys prefer, we have this Garland has either quelled the storm or not. If he has, that means, does this go into deep freeze until the Justice Department decides what to do, as in with respect to indicting people? Or uh, are there further steps that we would be looking for to happen uh, in relatively short order? I think a couple of things that have to happen first before you get a lot of movement investigatively. The first is, and because attorneys were involved in these discussions in June, I suspect that there was both a, a taint team or a, a group of people unconnected to the investigation, potentially included on the search team, who would go through and provide sort of a first filter against seizing anything that was covered by attorney-client privilege. What gets interesting here is there may be a crime fraud exception if the there are communications between Trump and his attorneys where they're saying, look, we really need to give this back. He's saying, no, I want to keep it. And if there's a back and forth that they are discussing, you know, knowing that they're supposed to do it and deciding they're not going to do it would be in and of itself, you know, evidence of a crime. But setting that aside, one thing you don't want to do is have anything inadvertently seized and a binder in the middle of that or five pages of just purely legal, you know, deliberative work product or attorney-client privilege product in the middle of something you've seized. So I suspect both at the search and then, you know, prudentially maybe a second filter team that is going through all these documents to make sure there isn't anything like that in there. The next thing you're going to face is, I, I, I don't know this, but I would suspect there is a decent likelihood that there is classified information from a variety of agencies in there and potentially in the context where it's not clear who it belongs to. The stuff, in my experience, that makes it to the president frequently is a fusion of classified information from across the intelligence community. So you might have, you know, PDB staff might put together or the CIA might put together a product which draws on intelligence from, from the National Security Agency, from NGA, from a variety of different sources to put 
a sort of a complete picture, the kind of thing that you'd want to present to the president. So once that clears that filter team, the investigative team is going to have to reach out probably through the DNI. I would not be surprised if they have a working group already established for the stuff they got from the archives back in, in April to sit there and say, and we did the same, you know, this isn't, it's not inventing the wheel. We, this is something that we did in Clinton. The Bureau does this a lot. And when you know you've got a sort of body of material where you're going to be getting tranches of it, you've got a group that's going to sit there, take all this back and say, you know, the NSA rep is going to say, okay, for these 15 products, you know, we have material here, 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 and here. Same thing going on across the rest of the intelligence community, which then all comes back to the prosecutors and the investigators. And they can say, yeah, you know, NSA said these five products were in fact appropriately classified at the TSSI level. You know, here's the limit. Here's the number of people who are aware of it. They just give you all the data that if you're trying to move forward first and investigate it, but later prosecute it, that you know you're standing on real, appropriately classified national defense information. And then from that, you know, then I think once you get that, and it won't, again, this isn't a lot of stuff, right? I mean, this is not two terabytes of email off a server somewhere that you got to go through every last piece of information. I think it should be fairly quick. And then from that, you, you start, you know, making investigative decisions about, you know, who, and it sounds like they're interviewing people already, maybe the, you know, the people who boxed up the Oval Office and the White House, the people who transported it, the staff down at Mar-a-Lago. It, there, there have been things written that lead me to believe at least some of that sort of investigation had been done. But, you know, you just sort of keep fleshing out, you know, who, so again, this hypothetical product where the NSA said that's our data. Okay. When did that hit the oval? Was that part of the PDB? Usually PDB comes on electronic tablets now, not in paper form. So what briefing was this introduced? Oh, it was on July 22nd of 2019. Who's the briefer? Track them down, go interview them. What did you take? How many copies of this did you take? Did you give it to the president? Did you give it to Meadows? Did you, I mean, just all these things that you want to go out and track down how it was handled, how it was presented to Trump, whether he gave it to somebody all that detail for those discrete products that you can sort of trace the life cycle of production all the way to, you know, the pancake line under the table at the banquet at Mar-a-Lago. And you can account as best you can for every little moment of that document's life. And when you read this document, was your reaction to it was, this is a search warrant in preparation for a criminal case or was your reaction to it as you had speculated before that this was a warrant designed to recover a spillage of classified material that was urgent to recover with the criminal question being kind of secondary to the question of uh, recovery and retrieval? I don't think of it in those terms. I don't think I would phrase it that way. I mean, it is they're, one, they're not exclusive to each other. I mean, one, when you have classified information that's out in the wild that is in an, in a, not stored appropriately by its definition, particularly at the TS level, that it reasonably expected to cause exceptionally grave damage to national security, you have the government has an obligation to go recover that. And so that that is not discretionary, whether you're going to engage in negotiations, whether you're going to try using a subpoena, which, you know, they're treating Trump with kid gloves, which I get, I guess. Or whether you get a search warrant, that isn't something that the government ever gets to say, ah, just leave it there. There's an obligation to go get it. So separate and distinct from that is the question, is the context in which it ended up there a criminal, did, did, are there criminal acts contained in that sort of narrative? 
and I think it's too early to tell. I, I don't. I don't think. In my mind, DOJ did not do this with a prioritization of one of those things over the other. I think they were aware of both of those sort of issues. They were aware of their obligation and need to go get it. That doesn't, I think, change the sort of independent assessment of how did this come to pass and is there criminal behavior involved in that flow of events? Quinta, wrap us up. What are you looking for going forward? Uh, is this going to be black holed like the search of Rudy Giuliani's cell phone a year plus ago? Or are we on a train careening toward the edge of the cliff, plunging into the depth of indictment of Donald Trump mere seconds from now? Yeah, in the in the words of a famous tweet, I'd like to see all Donnie Trump wriggle out of this jam. Um, in all seriousness, I, I can speak to the sort of reporting angle because I do think it's really significant that we learned about this search on Monday when Trump announced it. We knew nothing about it before then. The Washington Post had done some pretty impressive reporting about this weird situation with classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, but that reporting stream kind of ended in May, I think was the last time that I'd seen anything reported about it. And since then, we've had some reporting sort of walking through the timeline of how the National Archives first gets interested in this information in January, February 2022. That's when they show up. Then uh, they show up with a subpoena in June. Uh, there's apparently uh, interaction where DOJ tells them to, to put a lock on the door, which I, frankly, I still don't really understand. Um, and then there's basically a black hole until August when the FBI shows up with a search warrant. And so from my perspective, I would expect that all of the reporters who have been working the hell out of this story for the last few days are going to be digging like mad to figure out what on earth happened in those intervening months um, is something that we had no idea about and now suddenly has cracked open. Um, and clearly there are some folks in the Trump orbit who are more than happy to talk about it. So I will be very, very interested to see whether we get you know more reporting digging into just what happened in those intervening months that made uh, the Bureau show up with a warrant. Or, you know, maybe it will go dark until we get more information on the docket. Um, it's really hard to say. Pete, what are the circumstances in which the affidavit will actually become public? Is that limited to the situation of an indictment? Or is there some circumstance short of that where we would see uh, the factual record behind this warrant unsealed? I think two paths. One is going to be charges where it is uh, challenged and litigated. And the other option is at some point when the case is concluded and either Congress asks for and receives it or eventually a Freedom of Information Act requests prize it loose. Uh, certainly in the latter category, well, probably in both, I would expect redactions potentially about the, the detail, potentially of the documents. And certainly you know, there's a lot of speculation. Was there source? Was it somebody in the Secret Service? Was it, you know, the parade of horribles, which I hope keeps Trump up at night every night? Uh, some of that may be redacted, and we may not know about it for a long, long time. We are going to leave it there. Pete Strzok, Quinta Jurassic, Alex Wellerstein, thank you all for joining us today.
Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is our own Catherine Pompilio. Hey folks, if you have not become a material supporter of Lawfare yet, you're missing out on the chance to be a better person. Go do it now, patreon.com slash lawfare. I promise you it feels so good. You feel virtuous. You get some benefits. And even beyond that, you get the psychic satisfaction of knowing that you are enabling Lawfare Emergency Podcasts. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the one, the only Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who is somewhere in Europe. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.